let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life, and therefore to lay Christ in the bottom as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. That was the founding mission statement of Harvard University, founded in the 1630s and named after a pastor, John Harvard. The school had as one of its mottos to hold Christ high, to lift Jesus up. You can hear their fidelity to, to making Christ known even in their mission statement. And yet fast forward a few hundred years, and today nearly 40% of the student body at Harvard University identify as either atheist or agnostic. And this year the school selected as the chair of its religious department a well-known atheist. I think it's a classic example of mission drift. Just a few hundred years before, the mission was to press in to know Christ, who is eternal life. In a couple of years, a couple hundred years after that, the mission seems to be to deny Christ, to belittle him, and to make him obsolete. How does an organization drift so drastically and what can be done to prevent that kind of drift well in essence I think that's part of why Paul is writing the letter we've been studying the last few weeks the book of first Timothy he's writing to a church that's starting to move away from the center of the gospel and he's writing to Timothy and the church to get back on track to not move away from its mission, but to set their eyes firm on what Christ has called them to do. I think we've seen that a, a little bit in the passages we've already studied in this book. And I think that's the main focus of what we'll look at this morning in our passage in 1 Timothy. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. And this morning we'll look at verses 1 through 7. 1 Timothy chapter 2, 1 through 7. Paul says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So here's what I think is the main point of 
1 Timothy 2, 1 through 7, the, the main point of our passage. Pray for and proclaim the gospel to all people that all people might be saved. To a church that's, that's starting to move away, that's starting to drift a little bit, Paul opens their ears and tells them to pray for and proclaim the gospel to all people that all people might be saved. As we move through this passage, we'll hang our thoughts on two points that come from that main point. Point number one, pray broadly. We see that in verses one through four. And point number two, proclaim the gospel boldly. We see that in verses five through seven. So number one, pray broadly. And point number two, proclaim the gospel boldly. And point number one, and this is gonna be the longest point, right? I'm gonna give you a kind of shock warning, right, by far. And point number one, pray broadly. Now look there at verse one. And Paul says, first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. And we see here, Paul again urges Timothy. Now, the first urging he gave Timothy was corrective. Uh, so if you look back at chapter 1 in verse 3, there Paul urged Timothy to remain in Ephesus and to teach certain persons not to teach a different doctrine and not to spend their time teaching myths and genealogies or teaching the law as binding on people in the same way that it was binding on the Old Testament people of Israel. But here, Paul begins building a case for positively what the church should be marked by. That is, a church and Christian ministry isn't only about fixing or stopping what people shouldn't be doing. There's not simply a function to say no to false teaching and practice, but also to do what they should be doing, to say yes and comply with what God has commanded us to do. And here in verse 1, the first thing that Paul says a Christian church should be consumed with is not speculating about all sorts of things, but rather spending their time in prayer. I urge, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made. Those different terms there probably aren't exact or technical terms. Now, some of them are overlapping. For instance, of supplication, when you ask for something, isn't different from prayer. It's just a specific kind of prayer. Right? We do that every day when we ask God for things, for physical or spiritual strength. To intercede is to plead something on behalf of someone else. And we do that when we pray through the church directory. Or when someone says, can you pray for me? And we comply. Now, thanksgivings are exactly what they sound like giving thanks to God, expressing gratitude for who he is and what he's done, how he's provided. You see that sometimes Sunday mornings in our prayers of praise. And notice how these prayers are in the plural. It's supplications, intercessions, thanksgivings. We don't just pray once and be done with it. Rather, it seems that the ongoing, regular pattern of God's people 
is to engage in consistent prayer all the time by all the members. Now Paul's singular point, his singular charge here is to give yourself to pray. That's what tops Paul's list of duties. First of all, pray. Does that top your list? How high a priority is prayer in your life personally? How high a priority is prayer in our lives corporately? So you know, we mean to make it a high priority. That's why we spend Sunday mornings doing different kinds of prayers. That's why my pastoral prayer is so long. Some of y'all have told me, admitted that you've fallen asleep on them things. That's why we have a Sunday evening prayer service, like we'll do tonight. We're not mean, meaning to crowd your schedule up with another thing. But we're trying to emphasize what the Bible emphasizes. Prayer. The activity of prayer for Paul was crucial in the life of the church. And, and notice the scope of the prayers that Paul calls the church to engage in. Pray, not just for yourself. Pray, not just for other members of the church. Pray on behalf of all people. Now, Paul doesn't want the church to have a myopic view of the world. He doesn't want them to solely see and pray about what happens among the four walls of the church. But rather to know and pray about the needs, the struggles, the issues facing all people. Now, obviously, all people here isn't referring to every single human being in the world. We would all utterly fail if we were tasked with praying for every single person on the planet. But rather, as I think we'll see specified in the next verse, it refers to all kinds of people without distinction. And you see that more clearly communicated in verse 2. When Paul follows up this broad call to pray for all people with a more specific set of people to pray for, for kings and all who are in high positions. You know, often I think we assume that prayer is really only for those who are down and out, for folks who aren't well off, People who really seem like they need the Lord's help. Who really need something from God. But you know, Paul assumes that that description of neediness applies to everyone. From the pauper living under the city bridge to the president living in the White House. Everyone needs prayer. And so Paul calls the church to pray for them. Pray, he says for kings and for those in high positions, for those in authority. What a striking charge and maybe a challenge that is to us, especially as it refers to our relationship with authorities. I mean, what verb would you use to describe your attitude or actions towards the president, towards members of Congress, towards elected officials in our county. How would you fill in the blank in the sentence, I blank the government? Hate, am suspicious of, distrust, despise, could care less about? I mean, it seems that we live in a time 
where what's praised is bucking against authority, resisting the government, criticizing public officials. But it's instructive that the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, leans in a totally different direction when he writes to Christians about what our general posture towards those in authority should be. Romans 13 verse 1, let every person be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Or Titus 3.1, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient. And here in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, pray for all people, for kings and those in high positions. Yes, there may be times when we must stand up and resist authorities out of our greater allegiance to God. But those instances should be extraordinary. The ordinary rhythm of the life of a Christian is to submit to, obey, pray for those in authority. And in case there's this lingering sense in you that Paul must have been writing in a context where the government was far less intrusive on Christian rights, was far less threatening to Christians' livelihoods, let me remind you that he wrote these commands at a time when Christians had no rights. He commanded prayer for kings and high officials while those kings were actively pursuing and persecuting Christians. And indeed, many believe that Paul's very life was taken by order of the king, the emperor who reigned during the time he wrote this letter, Nero. And yet, Paul says, pray for him. Pray for him. Saints, that's why we spend time doing nearly every one of our services, praying for someone in authority. Whether that's President Trump or President Biden, whether that's some member in Congress or Governor Hogan or County Executive Also Brooks or County Councilman Streeter or School CEO Golson or Police Chief Aziz. Not because we agree with all their policies, but because they're people people in high positions whom God has placed there and commanded us to pray for. And so we pray. He says, get to know your local and national officials and pray for them. Now what's keeping you from doing more of that? Praying for all kinds of people, especially those in authority. Maybe you're intaking too much toxic material that just inflames your rage and anger against this or that politician, this or that political party. Maybe you need to take a week long or a month long detox from social media or from the news so that you might view politicians more like people made in God's image than monsters for you to attack. Maybe you need to make a conscious decision today to muzzle your lips from merely criticizing people in authority and instead to pray for them. 
Now, how might you do that practically? Well, as you read through the scriptures, pray for those over you. So let's say that one of the things you do is you read a proverb a day. That's a wonderful thing to do. There are 31 chapters in the book of Proverbs. And so if you took one for each day, you could read a proverb for each corresponding day of the month. All right, I wonder how much of our speech and our outrage would be challenged and changed. How much wisdom from the Lord would, would mark us if we took up that practice. Anyways, let's, let's say tomorrow, on the 20th day of the month, you read Proverbs 20. And in verse 2, you read, The terror of a king is like the growling of a lion. Whoever provokes his anger forfeits his life. Well, then you might read that passage and then pray. Lord, keep County Executive also Brooks from using her office and authority to terrorize the staff under her charge or the citizens under her care. Or, Lord, President Biden is likely to hear all kinds of news on various fronts today. Guard his heart from being provoked to anger that might cloud his judgment and wrongly influence his decisions. Read the Bible and let the language of the scriptures lead you into praying for all kinds of people, including those in authority. Come back this evening at 5 p.m. as we try to model that together as a church, using the scriptures as a springboard to pray for all kinds of things and all kinds of people. And let the news reports serve the same function. If you're going to read the newspaper or the news sites to be informed, then read them with an eye to pray through them. Turn daily news reports not into ammunition to fire off into tirades on your timeline, but rather as items to take to the Lord in prayer. There are multiple examples we could all use. But friends, take heed to this general charge that Paul gives here to pray for all people. And if you think, well, I just can't because this or that person, this or that party is just too against me, too against what I stand for, too against what God stands for. Well, then that doesn't really give you any justification not to pray. In fact, it provides more reasons to pray. In Matthew 5, chapter uh, chapter 5, verses 43 to 46. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? Saints, you, you, you see the logic here? If you simply pray for the folks that you like, Pray for folks in our families and in our churches that we get along with and who get along with us. There's nothing supernatural in that. And if we only criticize and refuse, cast stones at and rebel against authorities, we only act like the rest of the world. But if I'm reading my Bible right, the church is supposed to look different from the world, Amen. to live distinctly, to act distinctly, to respond distinctly. To always denounce and blast those in authority is earthly. But to pray for them is godly. What marks your posture towards people that God has put over you? 
from presidents to bosses, county executives to principals. Pray, Paul says, for all people, for kings and those in high positions. And he gives two reasons for such prayer. The first is there in, in the latter part of verse 2. Pray for them so that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. There's a purpose in praying for these leaders, for these rulers, and it directly affects the church. When they rule well, when they do their work well, we can do our work well. Pray for them so that we, the church, might lead a peaceful, quiet life, a godly life in every way. Now, a peaceful, quiet life it doesn't mean that Christians corner ourselves off from the world in some, some sort of enclave or, or cluster, or just minding our own business until the second coming. I mean, the Apostle Paul hardly lived a quiet life in that way. No, we've been given a commission by the risen Jesus to go and make disciples of all the nations, uh, to spread the good news of Jesus abroad and build up mature disciples of him. But Paul assumes that that work can be hindered or at least impeded when the rule of law is absent or diminished. The more chaotic a society is, the more unordered it is, the more a society is ruled by bandits, the more difficult it is for the church to peaceably carry out its work of evangelizing and meeting together to pray and build up each other in the word. Our brothers and our sisters in Afghanistan can attest to that. As the Taliban have taken over and made it more difficult and dangerous to meet, they disturb the stable work of gospel ministry there, at least temporarily. So pray for stable governments who promote and provide a sense of order so that Christians can carry out our mission. I pray that authorities wouldn't overstep their boundaries and infringe upon the church's ability to do our work. Friends, you know, that's why the separation of church and state is so important. It's not that the state should just totally disregard God and the church, or vice versa, that the church should totally disregard the state, but rather, that they understand the different spheres they've been given authority over. We don't want the state telling us who our members must be, or installing pastors in our churches, or giving us our doctrinal statements. That's beyond their sphere. Their sphere is to promote order and human flourishing, to protect and preserve life. Pray that they stay in their lane. And saints, pray that we stay in ours. Again, that's not to say that the church is to be totally apolitical, that we disengage from the society that we live in. But pray that we don't become so intertwined in the politics of the day that the church just becomes a public platform for a political party. Pray that we understand our distinct calling to live godly and dignified lives. Lives that shine a light on Jesus Christ as our ultimate king, 
and giving us greater opportunity to speak of him. I pray for rule and order that allows greater freedom in those areas for the church to live as she's called to live. But there's another reason Paul gives for why the church should pray for all people, for kings and those in authority. And we see it in verses 3 and 4. Because it pleases God who desires all to be saved. Look there at verse 3. Paul says this, I'm praying for all kinds of people, is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. You know, putting authorities on blast, using harsh rhetoric to condemn their actions, often wins the praise of people. I mean, there are whole channels devoted to that very thing and committed devotees who faithfully tune in. Now, people love that sort of thing. And perhaps you post something critical about this or that person or this decision that this person made on social media and you get a flood of comments affirming your tone or what you said and maybe a few fire emojis to show how you completely roasted them. But here's a question we need to ask with all our words and with all our actions. Is God pleased? Uh, yes, we can get the instant gratification of knowing people are pleased with our sharp critiques. But what about God? Friends, let that be a kind of preliminary question you ask before you press post or send. In those split seconds between someone sharing some information with you and you opening your mouth to voice your opinion, would God be pleased with what I'm about to say about this person? What does please God is praying for them. So the next time someone shares, can you believe what such and such did or said? Practice praying. Respond, yeah, that is sad. Let's pray for them together. It deadens the flesh, but it enlivens the spirit, and it pleases God. And why does praying for all people please God? Verse 4 says, because God desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, a number of you asked me this week, what does that mean exactly? that God desires all people to be saved. Well, in the flow of the text, I think the best exegetical argument, the argument rising out of the text, is that it means all kinds of people. Now, where do I get that? Well, again, in verse one, praying for all people is immediately followed up with a specific set of people, a people in authority. But pray even for these kinds of people. And if you broaden it to chapter 1, Paul presents himself in verses 13 to 16 as a former blasphemer and persecutor, as an example that anyone, regardless of their station in life or their past, can be saved. And going back a little further to chapter 1, in verse 7, remember that the false teachers in Ephesus were teaching adherence to Jewish law. Seemingly that you had to follow Jewish customs or laws to experience full salvation. 
of Paul's words here are sort of rebuttal. There's no need to practice Jewish ways. It's not just Jews that God desires to be saved, but all kinds of people, Gentiles as well. As we'll see in verse 7 when Paul says he was appointed a teacher of the Gentiles. So in the flow of the text, all people probably refers most specifically to all kinds of people here. All kinds of people without distinction and not without exception. But I don't think that's the full story. Because other texts show a broadness in God's heart that seems not just to refer to classes or groups, but to each individual person. I mean, John chapter 316 says, broadly, God so loved the world. And in the passage that Rick read for us earlier in Ezekiel, chapter 18, verse 23, God says this, have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked? And not rather that he should turn from his way and live? And in verse 32, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. It's a close parallel in concept to verse 4 here. I desire all people to be saved is the same as I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they should turn and live. And not desiring the wicked to die is desiring that they be saved. But that seemingly presents a problem, doesn't it? God desires all to be saved, but not all people are saved. Many wicked people perish. Why is that the case? One answer is that though God desires certain things, he's not able to bring them about. But that would just make God like men. I mean, I desire to have a full head of hair again. Chris shape up, a fresh fade. But my present hairstyle is a glaring admission that I don't have the power to do what I desire. But not so with God. He has all power and all authority and what he wants, he can do. So then, why doesn't he? If he wants all people to be saved, why does he not do it? Well, it's because God has another desire, a greater desire. Some believe that this greater desire is to preserve human freedom, to leave it up to people's free wills, their self-determination to make the final decision. God wants it, but they've got to equally want it. And so he just stands back and allows them to make the final call. And if they do, their desires and God's desires meet up and match in this perfect union of salvation. The problem is, the scriptures just don't bear that out. The scriptures say that we are dead in our sins, have no desire for God, and are unable to choose God freely. See Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1, or John chapter 6 verse 44, or John chapter 15 verse 16. 
God has to make us alive spiritually. It is totally of grace, totally of him. I think Paul's testimony, last chapter, illustrates that. But here's what I think is the more biblical answer. Yes, God desires all to be saved, but he doesn't grant all to be saved and to come to a knowledge of him. If you flipped over one book over to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25, we read there that God may grant repentance to some leading to a knowledge of the truth. And why does he not save all, but only some, even though he desires all to be saved? Because his greater desire is to display his glory, not only in mercy and saving sinners, but also in wrath and judging sinners. Now I want you to see this with me, not just believe what I'm saying. So turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. And I want us to look at verses 22 to 23 together. Romans 9, 22 and 23. Paul says this there. What if God, desiring, same word, to show his wrath, and to make his power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Now what's that passage saying? It's saying that God desires, means to display his full glory the glory of his wonderful mercy and compassion and salvation and the glory of, of his absolute holiness and righteousness and justice in condemnation, which puts a spotlight all the more on his grace in saving some out of that bunch. That's his greater desire to show the full splendor of his glory. And that's the desire that he decisively acts upon. Now, perhaps a human, and therefore an imperfect analogy to help clarify this, might be of you spanking your child. You might not want to spank him. You might even say, I don't want to do this. I want you to be spared of this discipline. And as a child, you're like, well, why are you doing it then? But you go ahead and you spank them anyway. Now, are you being a hypocrite there? saying one thing, but doing another. Was your expression of your desire to spare your child of a spanking disingenuous? Was it insincere? Well, no, you had the desire to spare your child, but you acted on a greater desire to correct errant behavior, to teach a lesson, to cause them to properly respect authorities, uh, to instill in them values for later on in life, to prevent them from facing harsher forms, of, harsher forms of discipline against rebellion later on in life, from police or the legal system, or from God in the afterlife. You had two genuine desires, and you acted on the greater one. What well, is the same with God? Yes, he desires all to be saved, 
That's his heart, but that's not his only desire. He desires to show his glory in mercy and wrath, salvation and condemnation, and so all are not saved. And yet, Paul here wants the church to adopt God's hearts, to desire the things that God does. Don't worry about who will be saved and who won't be, whom God has chosen to save and who he hasn't. Rather, fan into flame the desire that God has all to be saved, that God has for all to be saved. And one primary way to do that is to pray for all kinds of people, even kings and emperors, parents and co-workers, neighbors and children. God wants to spare them and to bring them to a knowledge of the truth. You don't know if he will or not, but that's not your business. Your business is to pray broadly. And along with that, to present the gospel boldly. That leads to our second point, present or proclaim the gospel boldly. And the gospel is the underpinning of all Paul said here. It's the theological basis behind the charge to pray for all people and behind the statement that God desires all people to be saved. Look there at verses 5 and 6. Paul says, for there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Now, why does Paul state here that there's only one God? Well, it's because it presents a stark contrast to the kind of universality he's been talking about throughout this chapter. I pray for all people. God desires all people to be saved. But these all people don't each have their own gods. There's one God over everyone. One God over all peoples. One God who's created everyone and who owns everyone and who has rights over everyone, who desires a relationship with everyone, but who's fundamentally opposed to everyone, in conflict with everyone. You know, it strikes me how many people fail to understand that. We've had a number of conversations with people in our community who constantly tell us, me and God are okay. I remember a conversation with a man walking through the, uh, the parking lot one evening. Bottle in one hand, swearing to me that he and God had an agreement. It's the sentiment that we all almost naturally share. Right? It's what we keep telling ourselves and others. That we're on good terms with God. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible presents God as opposed to us because we have all sinned against him. Now, how do I get that from this passage? Uh, that's kind of broad Bible knowledge, but how do we get that from 1 Timothy chapter two? Uh, well, I get that because God and man are presented here as on two total opposite spectrums. There's a great distance between them. Where do we see that? Well, we see that in the fact that a mediator is needed. 
maybe you remember in school, maybe middle school or high school, they had these peer mediators. When there was this conflict with two people, they put this mediator between them to resolve the conflict, to bring these two parties, once separated, back together again. Well, well that's where we stand with God. Friends, none of us are on good terms with God. We are sinners, and our sins have separated us from him. You read about that separation throughout the Bible. As God distances himself from sinners, he pushes them out of his presence. He did it with Satan, sending him out of heaven. He did it with Adam and Eve, driving them out of the Garden of Eden. He did it with Israel, by casting them away from the promised land. And he's done it with us. We are all apart from God in our sin. And here's what's so bad about this separation. God is our only source of life. The only source of true life. And David says in Psalm chapter 36 verse 9, With you is the fountain of life. And in Psalm 1611, You make known to me the paths of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Apart from God, there is no life, no joy, no pleasure, no peace. The things you most want and need, you're cut off from. So friends, no matter how well you think your life is going, apart from God, How well you think things are going with you living on the fringes away from him. All you really have are misleading signs that all is okay. Deceiving you from the very dangerous state that you're actually in. It's like someone with terminal cancer but who doesn't know it. Being asked, how are you? And they respond, I'm great. Failing to realize that they're a dead man walking. That's how it is with all of us, uh, separated from God in our sin. We are dead men and women walking on our way to eternal death in hell. But this one God over all people has provided a way for all people to be reconciled to him and to have life. But only one way through the one mediator between him and us. It's not the Pope, Perry, or any other priest. It's not the pastor or any other person in the church. It's the man, Christ Jesus, the eternal son of God who took on flesh when he left heaven and became a human to represent humans, to represent mankind to live the perfect life of obedience and trust to God that we should have lived but failed to live. But then to lay down that life. And verse eight tells us to give himself up as a ransom for us all. Jesus died the death that we deserve to die, to ransom us, to purchase our freedom, to buy us back out of bondage to sin and to Satan. By his perfect life, And his substitutionary death, he died in our place. He suffered our punishment. He rose again so that we all could be delivered and reconciled to God. Every single one of us 
who turn from our sins and trust in Jesus Christ as the only mediator so that we wouldn't go to hell. Jesus came to ransom us, to ransom you if you turn from sins and trust in him. This is not Paul's novel idea. Some story that Paul's made up. Paul here is just echoing Jesus, who himself said in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And the many include people from all colors and nations and backgrounds and languages. And we see a peak of that future scene in heaven in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, where we read of a group of worshipers falling down on their faces before King Jesus and singing a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. One mediator, Jesus Christ, came to ransom all kinds of people by his blood. And one day, King Jesus will receive the praise from all the people he's ransomed. Do you want to see people saved? And more than that, do you want to see Jesus praise for saving them? Then pray. Pray for all people to be saved. And proclaim the message of the gospel. The only message on earth by which they can be saved. That's what Paul did. He urges prayer for all people to Timothy and the church. But then he closes with his assignment in verse 7 to proclaim the gospel to all peoples, to Gentiles. It's a two-pronged model for us. Pray broadly and proclaim the gospel boldly. Pray broadly for all kinds of people, including authorities, that we might have peace and freedom to faithfully fulfill our mission, to proclaim the gospel boldly to all people, declaring that one God has sent one mediator for us all. Jesus Christ to ransom and save us. Have we drifted from that mission as a church to pray and proclaim? If so, let's acknowledge that. But let's make a step today towards moving our hearts and desires and activities more in line with God's. So that what he wants, peoples to be saved, and Jesus to be praised might be what we want. All peoples to be saved and King Jesus to be praised. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your mercy and kindness and saving sinners like us. We thank you for the commission you've given us, Lord, to pray for all people to be saved, to proclaim the gospel boldly that they might be saved. Lord, we are reminded that Many people, Lord, through their prayers, uh, were used of you to bring about our salvation. And so, Lord, let us not neglect so great a gift to pray for others 
and proclaim to others that they might experience the joy and freedom it is to know you through our mediator and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that any here who don't know him might, might know him today and might not leave as they left. Lord, we pray that those of us who do know him, know him will be strengthened and encouraged in his, in his uh, walk, in his commitment, in his sacrificial life and death for us. We pray all these things for King Jesus and his glory. Amen.